going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. Hey, first off, thanks for downloading the podcast. If you get a moment, tweet me at Calgary Today with a picture of where you're listening in. We'd love to see how worldwide the audience is. On this edition of the show, polls are only a snapshot of a moment in time. But at this moment, Alberta's provincial party leaders are not trending very well. We'll also update you on the rule changes surrounding midwifery in Alberta. And we discuss Christmas shopping apps. It's been much ballied about over the last few weeks and months is the road that the Rachel Notley NDP faces heading into the next election. And I always like looking at it from the perspective of each jurisdiction. I don't necessarily look at it from a province-wide because unlike in the U.S., you don't vote for a leader. So who are you voting for and what are the chances of the party being voted for in each of the different ridings? And one of the things that I found surprising about the 2013 election, or pardon me, the 2015 election, was that... It wasn't that Edmonton went NDP. It kind of was that Calgary had a large NDP uh, powerhouse. That being said, there was also that obvious uh, split in the vote on the right between the PCs and the Wild Rose. It didn't surprise me at all that the, the rural regions went Wild Rose. But what did surprise me was those smaller centers. Lethbridge went to NDP. Leth- uh, Medicine Hat went one NDP. And that was sor- sort of the swing states, if we were to call it that, here in Canada. What is fascinating to watch now is what everything looks like from a provincial standpoint now. And how are the leaders resonating as we get closer and closer to the election. So we bring in Mark Henry from Think HQ to dive more into his latest poll on this. Mark, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Oh, thanks, Joe. Lots to wrap our heads around when it comes to your poll. So I wonder right off the bat, when it comes to the parties, what kind of trends are we seeing? Well, I mean, we're seeing a pretty consistent trend across the problem. I mean, the, the, the NDP have a pretty rough road to re-election at this point. They're sitting at a 15-point deficit to the, to the Conservatives on decided vote province-wide. So the, the Conservatives sitting at 50%, the NDP are sitting at 35%. Uh, regionally speaking, uh, you know, outside of the two major cities, they've got, they've got big trouble. Like the, the, the Conservatives have run up big leads. Um, inside Edmonton, Edmonton City proper, the NDP continue to have a strong lead. It looks like their hold on the Edmonton region is starting to, to slip a little bit, though. Some of those ridings around Edmonton are going to be more interesting. And then and then you come to Calgary, and Calgary is going to be the place where if the NDP are going to repeat his government, they have to keep those seats that they've got in Calgary. They got 15 seats last time, and most of those seats came with very small margins, largely due to vote splits. And, and that's the challenge that they've got right now is their, their, their tracking numbers in terms of decided vote is actually about what they got in the 2015 election, which is a high watermark for them. But the problem is they're trailing by about 20 points. Mm-hmm. It, so, yeah, yeah. I was just going to say one of the things that I, I've I've always found fascinating when you break down by Calgary and Edmonton, and then you go to some of the smaller centers, is that's almost have to, how you have to take this all into context in a sense, because each region is different, and that's how you're going to end up with whether it's a minority, majority, whoever's in power, that kind of thing. Absolutely right, absolutely right. So we'll we'll see how it all plays out, but I, they need their Calgary numbers to start moving into into a, a more positive direction, or 
uh, this isn't going to be a very interesting election. Of the people that you talk to, how many are still sort of on the fence or waiting to see how the next little while transpires? Um, you've got about one in five voters right now who are undecided, which is about normal this this far out from an election. It will start to tighten up as we get closer and closer to the vote. But, you know, having about one in five Albertans say they're they're not sure about who they're going to vote, it, there, there's an added element of volatility to it as well. When you, when you ask people among those who have decided who they're going to vote for, why? So are you voting for that party because you like them and what they stand for, or are you voting for them because you don't like the others? Uh, you've actually got about a third of the electorate saying, I'm voting because I don't like the other alternatives for me. So that one third is very movable, depending upon what happens during a campaign. So there's still quite a bit of volatility left in the electorate. It's still one of those things, too, where you start to wonder, and and based off the leader numbers in particular, how much of this Mm -hmm. is going to be holding a nose when you uh, actually go in to vote, maybe? (laughs) Well, the, the leader numbers are interesting because right now in Alberta, there is not a single party leader provincially who's sitting in positive territory in terms of approval. You've got the for instance, the premier sitting with 44% approval, but 50% disapproved, so net minus 60, or minus 6, rather. Jason Kenney, uh, slightly better, but not much, basically the same, 43% like him, 45% don't, so net minus 2. And then David Kahn and Stephen Mandel, they're, they're deeper in the negative territory, but their problem is they, they have very little profile. You've got about uh, 40% of voters who you know, couldn't pick them out in a lineup, so they can't, uh, they can't evaluate whether they've done a good or bad job. It's almost starting to look as though it's becoming a two-horse race in a sense already, even though there were a lot, there was some talk of, hey, maybe the middle has some ground to move up here. I mean, potentially, but right now the, the Alberta party seems to have sort of put itself in the place of being in the middle. Their, their numbers are not good. They're, they're sitting below 10%. They did break into the, the teens a few months ago, but, you know, uh, Stephen Mandel's sitting with, Disapproval at about 37% um, versus 23% approve, even as numbers in Edmonton are not in positive territory. So they, they really have not got any positive momentum, and we're about three months away from the election. A lot of talk always whenever we talk polls and that kind of thing about the validity and all that kind of thing. And I want to ask about mm-hmm. your your personal, uh, how you go about your methodology and how you go about your own uh, your own polling. So what we use for, for most of our polls these days is online research panel. And so these are, there are various panels across the country that you're able to obtain sample. And these are people who have um, opted in and said, yes, you know, you can send me surveys from time to time and I'm happy to do them. And you basically stratify your sample according to age and region and gender, uh, pulling from various sample sources. And then you run it like you would a telephone survey where, uh, they're not sure what the subject of the survey is when they, they click, uh, you know, start the survey and they go through and give us their answers. We take that. We weight the data according to uh, StatsCan uh, census data, and then uh, the results are turned around from there. So it's not a random sample. So you're not, um, you shouldn't apply a margin of error as you would with uh, with a random survey. But if it were a stratified a random sample, a probability sample uh, for the survey that we just did. It would have a sample size or a margin of error about uh, plus or minus three. Let's talk a little bit about the the consistency, I guess, that you you're involved in, because I know, judging from what you've your your past work uh, with with polling here, is, is your you try to make sure you're getting to different points uh, relatively consistently, so that you do have a little bit of a, a flow chart, I guess, over the course of uh, say a year or whatever the case may be. Yeah, 
We've been tracking uh, Albertans' views on provincial politics uh, since well, since 2011, and we go into field every couple of months, and we ask a battery of questions, and we track that over time. So you're able to see how people shift and move around. Um, you know, some of the problems with uh, election polling that we've seen in, in recent elections largely has to do with the timing of, of the last sample. So if, if you know, for instance, if you do telephone uh, or if you do a, a survey for uh, television, mm-hmm. well, their, their biggest audience is the Thursday before the election. So that means you need to be out of field by Wednesday before the election. That's a lot of time between uh, basically a week between when you're out of field asking the last question from the last person and mm-hmm. when the vote's actually occurring. And what we found in, in a lot of elections is people are making up their minds a lot later than they used to. And it has to do with how much information is available to them. You know, the, the more information that people have, the more difficult it is to make a decision. Right. Um, and, you know, you think 20 years ago, 25 years ago, uh, the last uh, piece of information that people would would see before they went and vote would, you know, maybe reading the paper in the morning before. Now you've got Facebook and Twitter, and there's all all kinds of information coming at you from all kinds of sources. And it basically means that there's a, there's a portion of the electorate that's making up their minds later, and it means the numbers can be a little bit more volatile. So as an as a industry, it means we need to be closer and closer to Election Day doing our last sample so that our, our numbers are as valid as they possibly could be. And that's obviously one of the key takeaways whenever I read uh, any of the polls, including your own, is that it's it's a snapshot in time, in a sense, and to be able yeah. to see what everybody is is thinking at this particular point. And so it was fascinating, again, not only just to see the, the what the what how the parties were doing, but also how the leaders were doing, because it's almost telling a couple of different stories in there, and certainly does uh, open the door as well, as you mentioned, is there's still a lot of time between now and, and whenever the writ is dropped. So a lot can ha- a lot can happen and a lot can change in that short amount of time. Absolutely right. So, I mean, when people are seeing polls or reading about polls, and so always remember, it's, it's a weather report. It's not a weather forecast. So <laughs> you look out the window and say it's snowing. Is it going to snow tomorrow? I don't know. It depends. Um, sometimes it can, it can be pretty valuable in terms of, of forecasting what would likely happen. But a lot of times, you know, you're dealing with people and people do change their minds. Mark, I appreciate the time as always. Thanks, Joe. Mark Henry from ThinkHQ with the latest poll out talking about where everybody stands. Again, one in five Albertans are undecided, but those who are NDP holding an 18-point lead over the UCP within Edmonton city limits, but only an 11-point lead in the greater Edmonton region. And... Outside of Alberta's two metropolitan areas, the UCP enjoying a commanding lead over the NDP. But as Mark mentioned, this is not quite the forecast. It's just a here's what the weather is right now. We don't know what's going to happen when the red is dropped. Anything and everything could possibly happen. Talk about that and a little bit more coming up next. The Scalger today on 770 CHQR. In all my years of covering different elections... Granted, I, should, I shouldn't say all my years. I'm still fairly young. But during the last 15 years-ish in the business of, of journalism and radio, I've, I can honestly say I've seen it all. But there was a conversation that I've had recently when it comes to provincial politics that made me go, wow, that's how long time's flown by. Think about when things, I don't want to say went off the rails because they didn't, but things went sideways for the old school PC party. 
And I always go back to what was the turning point? Like when did things go drastically in one direction versus another? And at first I thought maybe it was the royalty review. Remember those two words together in a sentence? Ed Stelmack, 2007, 2008. And I had that sudden realization. It's been a decade since that whole thing went down. Wow. And I thought, you know, if that had not happened, how would provincial politics look today? Or had the PCs figured out their or done something different with their uh, leadership race determinations? How would things have changed had it been Gary Marr as premier versus Allison Redford? And then I go, that wasn't really the turning point. Turning point seems to, you can go all the way back, I would argue, to when the PC party brass voted, and party membership voted, 65% in favor of Ralph. And that sort of turned the tide. Because had there been more of a process in place for a succession plan, we'll call it that, and let's say the 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 pres, uh, preferred candidate would have been, say, Jim Dinning. Would we be in this conversation right now where it is significantly uh, a left versus right party? Or would the PCs have held on to power for even longer than the 43 or 44 years that they did? Now, the question becomes is, could either party, whether it be the NDP or UCP, go a little bit more towards the center? I'm only asking, could they, in an effort to pick up that last 20% of the undecided vote that is sitting there going, I don't know. Right? I do, I believe this wholeheartedly is that most Albertans are. Fiscal conservatives, but with a social conscience. And whether or not that social conscience overrules the fiscal conservatism or not is what will ultimately drive the election results. I think Albertans are are very knowledgeable and know that both are to be weighed equally, but the challenge becomes is who do they identify with the most? And so over the next few months, as I've alluded to this already, and I'm going to allude to it again, is as we head towards an election campaign, this is why the issues are going to be very, very important. Because I think both parties, both the NDP, UCP, and frankly, even the, the Liberals and, and Alberta Party will also have uh, their fair shake as well, is all parties will, will have their stances but where will they stand when it comes to health care, when it comes to education, when it comes to fiscal finances, when it comes to everything on the table? That's going to be our goal on this show in particular. And I know for the rest will be to highlight those issues and let you know where every party stands on every single issue, because those are the ones that are going to help you decide who will be forming the next government. This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR.
As you heard in the news with Aaron, Alberta is expanding what midwives can do. Health Minister Sarah Hoffman saying midwives who complete additional training will be allowed to do more. With reaction to that, we bring in Mount Royal University's Paula Price. She is the director of the School of Nursing and Midwifery. Uh, Paula, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Oh, thank you very much, Joe. I'm glad to be here. Your department's reaction to today's news from the province. Well, we are really excited to hear this news. This is very exciting news uh, for the Bachelor of Midwifery program in Alberta and for all midwives practicing in Alberta. Um, And at Mount Royal, uh, we have the Bachelor of Midwifery program, and uh, we will educate our midwives for these expanded roles. And we look forward to working with Alberta Health Services on this excellent initiative. We are fully supportive. What are the next steps for you when it comes to preparing your students for these upcoming changes? What we will do is we will wait and receive uh, written um, documentation and confirmation of exactly what the expanded scope and roles will be. And then we will take steps in collaboration with Alberta Health Services to um, look at um, the expanded roles and um, incorporate change into our curriculum where change is needed. And then we will um, implement those changes and evaluate the outcomes. Some interesting side notes, I think, from just what uh, I've read so far is that midwives who complete additional training will be able to do more, including broader range of prescription drugs, uh, prescriptions and contraceptives. And they'll be able to induce labor and use uh, ultrasounds to determine fetal position. I mean, these are some some pretty big steps at the end of the day. Yes, they are. And they will certainly impact midwifery care for all Albertans. And that's what we're so excited about is um, there will be this expanded scope of practice for midwives, especially in rural and remote areas. Midwives will be able to uh, keep their clients within their community. They will be able to treat them with um, these expanded interventions and not have to send them to urban centers. One of the things, I have a few friends who have used midwives, and, and one of the things that they were really happy with is just the, the ability to do everything all in one stop, in a sense, without actually having to go to a hospital or go to a, an urban setting to do so. In terms of the popularity of midwifery, what are you noticing in terms of some of the trends, and, and not only from from sort of the, the the family aspect, but also from a practitioner aspect? The demand for midwives uh, within uh, Alberta and and Canada as a whole has um, increased tremendously over the years. Uh, Mount Royal University uh, has the only midwifery um, program in Alberta, and the demand for midwives is um, incredibly great. Uh, We have no problem filling uh, our seats and um, the care that midwives will now be able to give will be, um, it, it will benefit the midwifery um, care needs of all Albertans. How integral, there's also a line in here about how the province is going to be increasing funding as well for midwifery services. And how integral is that funding in terms of not just keeping, or not just uh 
uh, training the, them within, say, your program, but also maintaining them and keeping them here in our province. Right. So that that will be exciting to see. And I don't know the specifics of that announcement. Mm-hmm. And we look forward to hearing more about about that ourselves. Is that something that you guys like to key on, I suppose, is, is to be able to uh, retain those services here? Because I, one of the things that is mentioned in, this, in, in the story is how a lot of the rules will actually be more in line with other provinces. And so it, it's got to be important to be able to, to maintain those that have trained here to keep them here. Oh, it's very important. Um, again, the demand for midwifery care in Alberta is huge. And Albertans um, need midwives. We need more practicing midwives. And we are really excited to be able to provide the education um, to get more midwives in Alberta. One of the questions that has always come to my mind is why the increase in, in the desire to have midwives involved rather than going to a hospital? Right. Uh, excellent question, Joe. Thank you. Uh, it has been... Um, uh, demonstrated through multiple research studies that the care of midwif of midwives um, is more cost effective than using very expensive urban uh, ho- um, hospital settings. The care that midwives give uh, is, are is cost effective. The outcomes are excellent, and um, satisfaction or client satisfaction is extremely high and from what I've heard people who have used a midwife will um, continue to use them. Yeah, like I said, I have some friends who have gone down that path and have recommended it, despite the fact that I'd not really heard of midwifery until just a couple of years ago, three, four, five years ago. So it's amazing how things have developed on that front over the last number of years. Paula, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much. Less than two weeks remaining for your Christmas shopping. And if you're looking for some ideas, I did just tweet a link at Calgary today on maybe some of the price points that you might be looking at for whether it's your boss or your girlfriend, your boyfriend, what you should be spending or what you could, just some guidelines, some random guidelines. I mean, it all depends on your own budget. But is there an app or an algorithm for that? That's why we bring in Dr. Chad Saunders, an assistant professor of entrepreneurship and innovation at the University of Calgary's Haskane School of Business. Dr. Saunders, thanks for the time this afternoon. Thank you. I'm going to ask that question right off the bat. Is there an app or an algorithm to help uh, the customer, the Christmas shopper out there trying to find the best deal? That's a, that's a great question. So I think it depends on, on which part of that problem you're, you're trying to solve. So the, the first part of it is if you're just trying to coordinate, you know, wish lists uh, among a group of people, you know, friends and family, then, then yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a number of options like um, Gipster and uh, Wishminder. Um, and those apps allow you to, you know, set up a select group of people that you're trying to find gifts for, coordinate among them their uh, preferences, and hopefully match their preferences with some gift ideas. When it comes to the apps and that, should people be kind of paying attention to how often they're visiting the apps? Because is there any risk that they might be jacking up the prices in their eyes? 
Yeah, absolutely. Like like any sort of uh, you know uh, purchase, you know buyer buyer beware. But I think for the for those uh, apps like Gifster and and Wishminder uh, and others, those you don't actually actually buy the items within those uh, apps. They're right. essentially a, a lighted broker. Um, the relationship between you know friends and family in terms of what they're looking for. If on the other hand you're looking for um, you know uh, actual items that you'd be able to to purchase. Then yeah, right now there's there's not a lot of options in in that space, and I think it it probably goes to the second part of your question, which I think was around you know the algorithm and mm-hmm. and what it would actually take to piece that type of algorithm together to match to, to essentially reveal you know preferences for the people you're trying to give gifts to um, without them actually telling you exactly what they want. This obviously that would be the easiest way to do mm-hmm. it. Just have these people tell you, but as we all know, um, that doesn't happen when you typically ask someone what they want, uh, they either give you some unhelpful information or, you know, something so generic in terms of, like, a, you know, our friendship is a gift enough. And you know, <laughs> just, for, just from experience, that is not true. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I've heard, yeah. Get. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, so for that to happen, then, um, you know, really you need a little bit more information. So you need some of their, you know, some of the information you've already said, like, you know, what's your budget and, and those types of things. So some of your personal preferences because there's just certain gifts that, that even though they might be the ideal gift for the person are, are just not a gift that you would pers- personally give someone, even if they were within your budget. Mm-hmm. And then the other part is, is trying to get um, the person you're they're giving the gift to their preferences without necessarily having to ask them. So, you know, we often have like demographic, like age and things like that. Um, but those really don't get, get you sort of great insight into, you know, their real preferences because, you know, Two children of the same age, for example, probably like you know entirely different you know sort of things. Mm-hmm. Is there? And then, a, yeah. Yep. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to say, is there an app to help organize those gift lists? Yeah. So, well, there's one called Gift List. <laughs> of course, there is. Why wouldn't there be? <laughs> Why wouldn't there be? And Gifted, and and so on. But again, those are those get you at least to articulating and and you know listing down some of those preferences. Oh, okay. Um, but in order to get at that, this is where, you know, sites like, you know, the Amazons of the world really have an advantage because uh, they have behind them a whole history of revealed preferences in the in, uh, in previous okay. sales. And they're able to use that along with, you know, sort of the algorithm that you just sort of identified where you're taking all that information and combining it together and sort of looking at based upon that what would be, you know, some likely gifts for, you know, this particular person of this age mm-hmm. with some of these preferences that you've, you've just sort of entered in. But Absolutely. even then, they still rely upon you to make that sort of final uh, sort of purchase decision because there's just so many variables that you'd have to take into consideration for sure. to pick that perfect gift. Dr. Chad Saunders at the Haskane School of Business. Thanks for the time, sir. Thank you. Just want to take a moment to thank you for taking the time to download and listen to the Calgary Today podcast. Don't forget to subscribe through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. We'll chat with you soon.